everybody, Jordan Skinner here with another awesome episode of the Crushing It in Construction podcast, a podcast that is dedicated to the construction industry where I interview amazing guests from within the construction industry that share their experience, their wisdom, and their insights that'll help you, the listener, either grow within your career or help you grow your business. So no matter where you are within the industry, there is always something valuable to learn from our guests and their stories. Now, Today, I'm chatting with Matthew Clough from Civil Infrastructure Group. Now, they are a company based in Victoria, and they have undergone some tremendous growth in the last seven years. They've basically gone from a few directors to now having roughly four to 500 employees going at any one time. So there's a lot of growth that's happened, and no doubt there's been a lot of sort of ups and downs and struggles. And in today's episode, Matt shares with us his journey into the construction industry some of the lessons that he's learned along the way. And he also shares some of the lessons they've learned building the company as well that a lot of people listening in should get a lot out of. So without further ado, let's get into this week's episode. G'day, Matt. Thanks for coming on the podcast, mate. I'm looking forward to having a chinwag with you. Thanks very much for having me. Good to be here. Yeah. So how's your week going so far? Not not too many fires to put out? This week, no, nah, not, not too bad. You've got to get a quiet week every now and again. So, for everybody that's listening that doesn't know you yet, could you just tell us who you are and what it is that you do? So, my name's Matt Clough. I'm the construction manager and, and one of the directors of Civil Infrastructure Group. We're a specialist civil construction company in Victoria, focused on large infrastructure projects primarily. And you're working on some of the big, big projects over there at the minute. Could you just tell us what they are? Yep. I mean, a lot of our work at the moment is in a lot of the level crossing removals that are happening. We do a lot of basically a lot of the concrete and the concrete structures related to those. So most of the ones above ground are in-situ piers and crossheads and pile caps and abutments and then decks if required. And you got plenty of work on at the minute, which is always a good sign. Yeah, it's crazy at the moment. So Victoria's obviously going through a boom and there's a heap on and, and a heap coming. Yeah, that's awesome. So tell us a little bit about you. Where did you grow up? What was childhood like? What were your exposures to the construction industry? Was it something you always wanted to get into or did it just eventuate as you get older so i was fortunate enough to do an aptitude test in maybe year nine before we sort of had to do work experience and i guess my first top five suggestions for a job were engineer i thought at the time that aerospace or aeronautical engineering would be pretty cool and then i did work experience with one of the larger commercial builders so i had a family friend who was one of the owners and, and did work experience for a week or two weeks and i thought this is awesome this is definitely what I want to be doing. So that was it, civil engineering. Yeah. And basically just worked out what I needed to do in school, probably the bare minimum of what I needed to do in school <laughs> Yeah. to get where I where I wanted to go. Was anybody else in your family in engineering or in construction? Like what was your exposure to the industry before the aptitude test? No, not really. My mum studied civil engineering for six months when she was going into uni and she dropped out after six months to go pursue a career in banking. Okay, yeah. cool. So you obviously went through uni, did all your studies. Where did you land when you came out? Was it locally, interstate, and what, what were you doing? So one of my business partners now, he was dating one of my good friends. Second year uni, he reached out to me and said, do you want any work experience? And I said, absolutely, I do. I was working as a pizza delivery driver at the time. Basically jumped on that and I yep. basically got to work, went, yep, this is what I want to be doing, construction. Yeah, I worked every minute that I could basically from that point on. To the point where I failed subjects in uni on attendance because I was working. Okay. <laughs> I prioritized work well above uni at that point. 
I think there's something to be said for there's experiences that you can't get in a book, isn't there? So it's not like you were out kicking the footy or doing something that wasn't remotely associated to your studies. But yes, I suppose on paper, it still doesn't look good to fail. (laughs) It didn't, but I guess I was confident in that I knew what I was doing. I knew the experience I was getting was probably far more valuable than what I was learning at uni. The saying, P's get degrees, is true (laughs) (laughs) to some some extent. But if you're getting the right experience and have the right connections. I guess by the time I finished uni, I was already running probably multiple projects at a time. So sort of finished uni well above probably a lot of my peers in that sense. And it just sort of went from there. I was was ready to go and love what I did. And How long were you doing the job before the inclination of wanting to start a business came about? So I never really wanted to start a business, right? Or own a business, I should say. And I guess the main thing that pushed me on on that path was there was a lot of things that I feel like myself and Andrew, one of my partners, we felt like we could offer and weren't really given the, the ability to offer that where I guess I started my career. Sort of saw where Andrew's career was going. So he was five years ahead of me in his career and I sort of saw where that was going and going, well, this is probably a dead end. It was a small company, I guess, in hindsight. It didn't feel small at the time, but saw where that was going, saw where he was going and how much struggle he was having to get traction to progress where he wanted to go. And I'd been there for seven or eight years at that point. I don't think they valued me quite how I valued myself, whether or not <laughs> I was I was accurate or not. But it was a lot more that we could give and, and everything was sort of same old, same old, just keep building this and, and we'll yeah. do this and then we'll just fight with clients and things like that. And it was like, it's not right. So I'm, I'm pretty ambitious. I want to go and try and do this. And also where we were, you sort of outside the ladder of an engineer, you know, where you side engineer, project engineer, senior project mm-hmm. engineer, project manager, blah, 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 blah. And I sort of didn't have a good feel for where I sat either yeah. there. So I left Clifton Formwork and, and joined Fulton Hogan after seven or eight years. Fulton Hogan was a great experience. It was a good opportunity for me to see what a big business can look like. They had a great culture. I did enjoy working there, but there's something a bit removed as well, right? Because it was so big? So I was in a smaller team who do a little bit more holistic approach to projects. You might look at a bunch more stuff than just one section of the job, but I still wasn't getting that. I can bring more to the table. Yeah. Just look at different ways of building things. That yeah. still really wasn't there. So, what was the catalyst for actually having the conversation around starting a business? Was there? So, I didn't start CIG. I, I was yeah. part of that conversation, and I think there's a very good chance I was the catalyst for CIG starting because I left Clifton Formwork. I was running four or five projects at a time. After I told them I'd been offered a job, the owners didn't talk to me, right? So, like, that was it sort of thing. I guess I sort of was ready to leave anyway, which was fine. But my business partners now probably saw how little they valued me, sort of reflected that on themselves and went, well, if Matt can go, you know, and they don't raise an eyebrow, what happens when we do? So, if I'm understanding you correctly, sort of when you leave or decided you were going to leave, the people running the business kind of froze you out and sort of didn't speak to you and weren't overly friendly about it all. Yeah. Which is a shame, really, because I think it's extremely short-sighted because if the company is helping their people to succeed, it should be whether it's with them or without them. Because at the end of the day, I know a lot of companies that have had people leave only to come back again. You know, Mm. the grass always looks greener somewhere else. But after having that experience that you sort of described, you would kind of think, well, why would you bother? (laughs) So, your now partners were all working where you originally were, is that right? At one time or another, we all worked there except for Matt, our CEO, but yeah. Tell us a little bit about the company. You're six or seven years old now? We will be seven in May. And in that period of time, you've gone from you and your partners, basically, so five or six people, to over 500 employees. It's a huge amount of growth to have 
To go to that amount of people in such a short amount of time is really impressive and I'm no doubt also quite stressful. (laughs) So tell us a little bit about some of the different stages the company's gone through to get to where it is now. Well, early days, obviously, I was was on the other side of the fence. So I was working for Fulton Hogan when CIG's first job was on a project that I was on. Maybe we got 10 people working there. There's a couple of employees who were there at that very first day who were still with us. By the time I got there, CIG was about just a, a year old. We had just started EJ Whitten Bridge project, which is quite a large, difficult project, building crossheads 50 metres in the air and steel girders on top and then decks and all sorts yeah. of stuff. And very, very difficult formwork and false work and things like that. And I came on and I actually helped us win a project before I joined in power infrastructure. So I sort of started that branch of the company up and, and we had two engineers and two students. And so I immediately started going, oh, okay, we need to just make sure that we with resources well and, and, and start delivering. So I started meeting new clients and sort of getting a good feel for where our workflow was going. And then I guess the next sort of step we got to was where I wasn't being a project engineer anymore. I had to start bringing more engineers on. So yep. it was quite a drastic change at that point. So within those first couple of years, what would have you said roughly it went to from a few people when you started to the end of year two, what would have you would have been? Yeah, so we probably went from about 20 people when I got there at one year old, and then we've been to 50 people fairly quickly. Mm-hmm. And that was at the Christmas party. So we were probably 18 months old then, so we were at yeah. 50 people. It was not long after that, the we had a level crossing project, but it was a big occupation. They awarded it to us very, very late in the piece. And so we had a very small warm-up to a very big occupation. And that's when we sort of exploded. We probably doubled our men in the course of two months. And then we sort of kept the growth going sort of from there. I guess the step from myself and my directors was when we weren't the people doing everything. You know, that next step was when we started having supervisors and engineers where we had to look after them and start telling them how how to do everything. With expanding so quickly, no doubt the personnel side of things, the system side of things must have been sort of non-existent initially. How did you try and build those quick enough to keep up with the growth? Yeah, well, that is a massive challenge, right? I guess we're still struggling with that. So your growth is going up like this and your systems are sort of, you're always 12 months behind sort of thing. The biggest thing, I guess, with making sure systems are implemented is having someone that owns that process and is focused on implementing it. We give our engineers a lot of ownership and a lot of the time, if something's needed, Maybe our engineers will, will make the thing that is needed, I guess, up to the point a year ago or so where we got our ISO implementation. Yeah. So was this kind of rapid growth the plan or is it just seizing opportunity where you see it? How has that sort of come about? It's a bit of both, right? There was always sort of a minimum turnover that we needed to make sure that a business like ours was going to be viable with so many owners to make sure that you're all sort of contributing a fair amount. One of the things was the industry was in such an interesting position when CIG started that the initial look of it was like, well, this is not necessarily a no-brainer, but there's a high chance of success, I guess, I thought. Probably 50 million turnover is the point where we were like, that's a good amount of turnover for what we sort of have. And then I Mm -hmm. guess when probably now approaching three times that. So above that, it's been sort of opportunity and, and I guess a refocusing of our goals and what's coming in the future where we sort of went, okay, well, we've done that and we know what a business of that size looks like now and we know what the market's doing. So certainly some of our growth has been driven by the market. It's like, we need you to do this. There is no one else, you know, it's a good opportunity to do this relationships. We need you to do it. 
Yeah. And certainly some of what we've done has been brought on by that. It's multifaceted, right? We didn't go, this is a $100 million company and let's go. It was certainly not that. I guess our initial goal setting and certainly what I got into was a much, much slower growth to that. So it really is explosive to some extent because it sounds like from what you're saying, and correct me if I'm wrong, that year three, four, you were size-wise quite a lot smaller than you are now. So a lot of this growth has happened within the last three years. The last two years have certainly been hectic growth-wise, but in terms of steps, the curve probably looks the same, whichever one yeah. you sort of look at. The last two years, we've stabilized our diversification a little bit and, and added appropriate businesses that complemented us. So I think you touched on it just then, you know, it's been hectic getting to where you are in the last nearly seven years. So, I mean, looking back, what would you do differently, if anything, if you had your time again? Are there certain mistakes that were made that sort of ended up teaching you a valuable lesson that maybe then made you implement certain things or change certain things? What is it that you'd do differently if you had your time again? I think some of the lessons we've learned, we probably had to learn them the way we learned them. The biggest lesson I think we've learned is like cash is king, Mm -hmm. cash flow is king which are different things, but some of the back-end sort of things of business, not necessarily the construction or the teams, would have been better to shore up earlier. So like cash flow projections and all that sort of jazz and pipeline. Yeah, like there are obviously hard bits that every business faces and I guess I'm pretty sure every business goes through the same learning process and because of our rapid growth, you have to make decisions that if you had had a bit more planning or foresight, you probably wouldn't have made them that way. You would have done it a different way. Yeah. But I mean, yeah. at the end of the day, I wouldn't change it. There's certainly lessons we've all learned I'll take with me. For yeah. sure. We went through a pandemic where yeah. <laughs> there's been a lot of unforeseen, unforeseeable things over our time. And there's certainly nothing you can plan for, I guess. Yeah. COVID and all that was sort of, nobody knew what was going on. It was pretty chaotic. So growing a business within that is kind of like a drop in the ocean. Is, is that where you're getting at? Yeah. Yeah. It was crazy, right? So like the first, yeah. I think it was August the first year. So we'd had like lockdowns and things like that. So it was two years ago, two Augusts ago. But mm-hmm. that was our biggest month ever. It was the first time I think we hit 10 million a month turnover. I remember looking back going, what is going on? Everything should be stopping and it's going bananas. And it's times like that you thank whoever it is you look up to that you're in the industry you're in because there was a lot of other industries going around at that point that were really feeling the pinch. Well, yeah, yeah, that's exactly right. Definitely, definitely grateful. I mean, there were certain times when you were like, is everything going on? Is this the right... Is this right? You know, we're, mm. we're continuing going, but you do what you can and we're not in control of that sort of stuff. So, yeah, do with it yeah. as you can. And- one thing that you mentioned to me when we were chatting before Christmas is that one of the hardest things that you've come up against so far is the process of trying to let go of certain roles within the business as you're moving up. Yeah. And we had a bit of a chuckle at the time saying that, you know, typically it takes a lot longer to do that, but you're trying to build the foundation while you're working on the next level at the same time. So it's, yeah. it's a bit of a, a struggle. Yeah. Tell us a little bit more about how you found that whole process and how you've actually found letting go of roles to make sure that you can keep moving up. It's a struggle. <laughs> it's been <laughs> hard, sure. right? So part of the thing is it's your business. No one's going to do it as well as us, right? Like, so I care about that the most. I'm going to work the hardest at that. I, you know, I know how to do this thing, right? Whatever this thing is. And I set up this process. I'm the one who knows how to do this process. Rah, 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 rah. It was one of those things is like you want to surround yourself with clever, good, switched on people and which it, you know, I strive to do every time I sit down at the interview table with a new engineer is just make sure that I'm, we're surrounded with the right people. But even then you go, here's this process. I want you to do this. No, get out of the way. I'm doing it because you didn't do mm. it right. That's really a hard part of letting go. They're going to make mistakes, but you've got the right person there. They'll get it right. And it becomes easier when you start seeing the belief in the people that they know how to do it and they believe in the company and the way we're going. And without it, 
for a lot of people, it's a massive bottleneck because at the end of the day, if, for argument's sake, you're a business of four or five directors and you're trying to operate at the scale of X, whatever that may be, yep. if people can't learn to let go, those five people soon become a massive bottleneck and a huge handbrake for the business so you can't end up hitting whatever targets it is you've got. So it's a really important thing to be able to figure out how to let go. But I think a lot of people really struggle to do it. I know I'm at fault for this. I'm a bit of a control freak at times. So how did you and your partners eventually learn to let go? Did you get help? Did you read something? Did you, I don't know, have a come to Jesus moment? What was it? I think we're all still learning that skill. You can let go of this much, right? And we're letting go of the stuff at the bottom first. But every time you get higher, it's a more important thing that you're letting go. We're certainly still learning that as a team. I've gone through a lot of, and I've listened to a lot of personal development angled stuff and had a lot of focus on that. So my approach to that was, well, I want to be a good leader and having trust in your people and teaching them is a big part of that. So that was certainly my approach. But I guess to answer your question directly, I, I think we're still learning that that skill. Yeah. It just comes with the trust of the people around you and we're finding more and more people that we can trust and, and more and more people that sort of believe in the same mission that we believe in and we have a good culture here and that makes it a lot easier certainly in our leadership team and throughout the business you know it's great you go to sites everyone's very happy and easy to talk to that whole environment makes it much easier to trust people and i guess the hardest part is watching them make mistakes i guess part of that that's what I was about to touch on. I think the first hurdle for any kind of business owner to try and make these changes is just accept that there is going to be mistakes because I think a lot of people, they want it done right first time, which is not not reality. And I think as soon as you can accept that there is going to be mistakes, you can get over it and yeah, move on. I remember talking to you when we last had that conversation. I remember being taken to a, a seminar when I was 18 and yep. I remember listening to this business seminar that my old man took me to and, and still to this day, one of the things that I remember is this guy, he was a business coach or whatever it was, but he was saying, you know, the biggest mistake that people make is trying to find somebody exactly like you because if they're exactly like you and they're as good as what you are, they'd be running their own business and not working for you. Yep. So the best you can hope for is about 70%. If you can get 70% out of somebody, you're doing okay. Mm. And I think that's pretty reasonable and it's always sort of stuck with me for some reason. Uh, look, I look, I 100% I agree with that sentiment. I think a lot of our engineers now are 150% <laughs> of what I could offer as an engineer these days. And that's been my goal is that those are really yeah. the people you're trying to find. But like hoping for 70 and, and getting more, you know, it comes with time, right? Yeah. It comes with time and after learning. That's an important point that you make though, because people think that you're going to get 70, but you think of everything that you have to do in a day as a business owner. You can't give one job 100% of your attention. Whereas right. one person focusing on one thing is probably going to do a better job than what you are because it's all they need to focus on, mm. not the 50 other things that go along with running a business in a day. So there's a certain degree of change in the way you think about things, I think. This has been a good chat. Is there anything else I haven't asked you that you think our audience might really benefit from? Any words of wisdom, any other lessons you've learned along the way? Well, hopefully there's a lot of engineers that hear this and I, I guess a word of wisdom to those people is particularly people if they're in the young parts of their career. Remember that you're an engineer first. A lot of engineers in the industry these days, and I, I've interviewed a lot of them, they go in and they go, all right, what's the process? And they go, okay, cool. This is, you know, this is what I do and this is what I do and all I do is refer to my boss. This is the process and this is the procedure. And just there's no expansive thought. There's no lateral thinking and problem solving. And generally, you're a civil engineer because you're good at physics and math and you're a problem solver. Those are the things that should make the core ingredients that make a civil engineer. If I could say something to the broader community, I think a lot of our success has come from the fact that we have an innovative approach to basically every job we go to. We try and bring some sort of innovation and we've got all sorts of new formwork that hasn't been seen certainly in Victoria for a long time. If it has been seen elsewhere, we've got a patented curing method 
all sorts of different ways of formwork and safety things and try and push that into our people. And we've had some really, really good people in our business that have you know, really bought into the mission and certainly really bought into the fact that, you know, there's better ways of doing stuff and let's think about that and, and put some time and effort into making sure that things are right. So particularly engineers, but everyone in general, like be problem solvers, status quo is not necessarily the best way to do it. Just because it's been done the same way for 20, 30 years, it doesn't mean that it's the best way to do it. I think that's a great point to end on. Just because it's been done the same way for 20 years before doesn't mean it needs to be done for the next 20 years the same way. And I think that is a sentiment that a lot of our industry could probably benefit from in a range of different areas, from people to culture to methodologies to everything. So I think it's an important point. I always like to end these episodes on a bit of a, a weird and wonderful note. I know you had some reservations about this before we kicked off, but what is a weird or interesting fact about yourself that most people don't know? <laughs> I don't know. I don't have a good one prepared. I asked my three-year-old what he thought. That's a good place to start. Yeah. Well, I mean, his answer was that I'm chocolate. So, I don't know what that means. But. Hmm. Well, I haven't heard that one before on so, the podcast. I think he might be just trying to get his mum to give him some chocolate and that's all he's thinking about. But Smart kid. I've done a lot of different things, lots of travels and things like that. But I, I Well, where's one of the weirdest places you've been? Where have you traveled? Well, Japan's certainly weird. It's not exactly a unique place to travel these days. It's fantastic. I want to go. When me and my wife first got together, we always joked about going to Japan, but we never actually went. And it is one place oh. we want to go. But I think it's quite expensive, isn't it? Yeah, it's one of those things you can go rural Japan and have just these fantastic experiences surrounded by locals and it's a really, really cool, interesting place to go. For sure. Where can everybody get in touch with you, learn more about CIG and just generally get in touch if they want to reach out, learn more about you or the company? I think the best place is probably through LinkedIn. We've got people that sort of look after that page, so you'll be able to get in touch with someone fairly quickly. I'm on there as well. If you want to shoot me a message, happy to have a chat with anyone. Well, thanks very much for coming on and having a chat. I appreciate your time and have a good rest of your week. No worries. Thanks very much for having me. You've been listening to the Crushing It in Construction podcast. To ensure that you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player, and it would be greatly appreciated if you could leave us a five-star review. If you'd like to learn more about employer branding and recruitment marketing strategy, feel free to visit our website at moonshotmedia.com.au or reach out to me directly at jaskinner at moonshotmedia.com.au. Thanks again for listening and I'll speak to you in the next episode of Crushing It in Construction.